Harvard Divinity School. Nosologies, Affect Theater and Collaborative Meaning Making, a conversation with Christiana Giordano and Greg Perotti, November 2nd, 2022. Good afternoon and welcome to our second Nosologies event for the 2022-2023 academic year. I'm happy to be here again with you. I'm Giovanna Parmigiani and I am the host of this series organized within the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative of the CSWR here at Harvard Divinity School. This series focuses on ways of knowing that are often labeled as non-rational, traditionally referred to as gnosis in Western philosophical and religious traditions, and often understood in contraposition to science. These ways of knowing are becoming more and more influential in contemporary societies, popular culture, and academic research. What is the place of spirit possession, divination, and experiences perceived as out of the ordinary in our lives? How can we study and approach this type of phenomena? What is the place of multiple subjectivities and collaborative meaning-making practices? Going beyond dichotomies such as body and mind, ordinary and extraordinary reason and affects and matter and spirit. This series hosts scholars of different disciplines and practitioners interested in exploring and expanding the boundary of what counts as knowledge today. So it is with immense pleasure that I introduce today's guests today, um, Cristiana Giordano and Greg Fiorotti. Um, Cristiana is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Davis. She received her PhD from UC Berkeley and her book, Migrants in Translations, uh, Caring and the Logics of Difference in Contemporary Italy won the Victor Turner Book Prize for Ethnographic Writing and the Voyer Prize in Psychoanalytic Anthropology. Her current research investigates new ways of rendering ethnographic material into artistic forms. And as a result of this interest, she met with our second guest uh, today, Greg Priotti. Greg is a assistant professor in experimental dramaturgy at the University of Arizona. He co-authored the Laramie Project, uh, Laramie 10 Years Later, and the People's Temple, which have garnered Humanitas Bayera Theater Critics Awards and an Emmy nomination. He has co-authored the Moment Workbook with members of Tectonic Theater Project, and his research investigates dramaturgical practices that deal with problems of narrative and truth claims in theater of the real. Together, Giordano and Pierotti have been collaborating on a new methodology, Affect Theater, at the intersection of the social sciences and performance, which will be the topic of our conversation today. So thanks, Christiana and Greg, for being here. Thank you, Giovanna. Thank you so much for having us. So last year, I taught a course here at HDS, Religion, Materiality, and the Senses, that was basically a sensory ethnography course. Um, and in this course, my students and I encountered your work and thought it was particularly thought-provoking. And so there we are. Let's start from here. Do you want to tell us a little bit how I encountered your topic of research and practice, affect theater, or maybe how it encountered you? So, um... We have a little origin story that we usually tell to explain how we met and why we met. But um, so I, when I was writing my first book, Migrants, well, my dissertation that became a book, I was, um, as everybody who was writing big projects, 
I was struggling with how to organize, you know, this immense quantity of ethnographic material. And I went to see a play at the Berkeley Rap, which is a local theater in Berkeley. And I saw one of the plays that um, Greg um, wrote, The People's Temple, which is uh, the story of uh, the People's Temple, which was a movement uh, in, uh, in the 70s in the Bay Area that followed Jim Jones, uh, who was a, a spiritual charismatic figure. Um, um, and, you know, this movement had a very complex uh, history, uh, social, racial, political history, and it ended up in, um, in, in a form of mass suicide. So the company, the, uh, Greg and his collaborators had researched this movement and had done interviews with survivors, with family members of the people who were part of the group, archival documents, and they devised this amazing play that portrayed the story and the social life of the movement that I went to see. And when I left, I felt like, okay, now I can write a book. Because what the play did was, um, it looked at one event from so many different angles that, um, and, and it kind of conjured so many different voices that at the end you leave and you really don't know what's right and what is wrong, what is ethical, what is not ethical, like all your questions are completely reformulated. And it's kind of what I wanted to do with my ethnographic method. So after writing the book, I started um, taking classes in um, theater writing. And, you know, I was kind of searching for a different form of uh, writing and the universe conjured because Greg Pierotti, who I really didn't, I mean, because he, I knew the theater company, but not the individual members of the Tectonic Theater Project, but Greg appeared at UC Davis as a, a student, as an MFA student and colleagues kept telling me, you've got to meet him, you have to meet him. And so I, wrote him an email and I said, well, you know, I'm interested in theater and I'm working on questions of uh, migration and borders. I, you know, I work with ethnographic material. Do you want to meet? And, and maybe we can collaborate on something. And now it's, you know, Greg, it's your part of the story. <laughs> and so I just ignored the email um, because that's how I respond to things when they first appear to me. Um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm really slow at kind of committing, but you know, uh, Christiana persisted. And so on the second email, I agreed to have coffee with her. And you know, from that initial coffee meeting, it was just so apparent that we had so much um, to share with each other and to learn from each other. Um, I think, you know, this speaks directly to kind of the project that we share, Affect Theater. I think one of the things that was resonant for Christiana and for a lot of audience members about the People's Temple um, is that there is like a shared cultural narrative about like what happened down there. You know, a, a lot of younger students that, that I encounter don't know about this event, but when I was growing up, you know, this was a huge event and it was basically a mass murder suicide by a bunch of crazy cultists in the jungles of Guyana. And that was the story. That was the beginning and the end of the story. And so our project was <clears throat> to sort of encounter this giant archive of empirical material 
and try to refract all the different sides of this story from all the different places of all the different stakeholders to, to see that there, there really isn't a true, like a, a definitive true version of the story that, that we can share. And so this is a lot of what, where we depart from when we start to engage with our own and other students' empirical material using epic theater. Um, is you know we're we're interested I think in, as much in the collisions of like truth claims as we are in kind of coming up with a definitive version of you know what our research might mean, and um, so I always I often say you know the the work is a lot about not knowing what our research is rather than knowing what our research is, and I think that that um, we're both very engaged by this question. So you know that that was a, a jumping off point for us, and then. Um, I was working on a body of material about uh, Freddie Gray, who was a Black Baltimore resident who was killed in an illegal arrest by the Baltimore City Police. And so we organized a workshop around that material, and we, we spent a long time with students developing that, and it, and it became like one act of what will hopefully be a two-act play at some point. And then the following two years, we worked with uh, Christiana's material that she she gathered in in the Mediterranean around bodies and motion and migration and um, we developed two projects based on that material called Unstories and Unstories Two. Um, Thanks a lot, and you know, thank you for this origin story. <laughs> it's always nice to hear um, what's in the background. But can you tell us a little bit more? What is Affect Theater? How it works? Um, uh, yeah, some more about the practice, actually. Yeah, so we started by really kind of trying to create, um, you know, you can call it a cross-pollination or a collaboration or a weaving together of our individual practices. So my ethnographic work and anthropological questioning with a theater, a very specific theater devising practice that Greg taught me and you know the first iteration of our working together was a seminar in the in the anthropology department and in performance studies and i'll just throw in that for you know for those of you who don't know the theater disciplines that theater devising is just it's a way of making theater that doesn't depart from an existing script that was written separately so typically in the theater a playwright writes a play and then they hand it over to the director who gets designers and actors to kind of use the play as a blueprint to create a show. And what we do is we kind of start with a body of research and these particular practices and build from the ground up the performance, the text, the design and everything simultaneously. So what was compelling for me was the fact that I could bring all or you know select my ethnographic material interview transcripts, uh, field notes, uh, images, uh, sound recording, objects, and, and share them with a group of collaborators, those who participated to the seminar and then later to the series of workshops so that we organized. And so the compelling part was that we would start from this raw ethnographic material and together we would work it and, and create a performance. And when I say work it, I mean, we would start actually devising, working with this technique of devising, devising ethnographic material into a performance. 
And here is where um, the vocabulary of um, elements of the stage, which is what Greg introduced us, becomes extremely important because when we do workshops, we work with empirical material, but what is fundamental is to bring into the room all the elements of the stage, which are sound, uh, light, objects, uh, space, uh, other bodies. And so, and, and Greg can say something more specific about it, but the idea is that even if we work with ethnographic material, which is mostly textual, which is made of words. And is also an element of the stage, right? And that, exactly, that is just another element of the stage. So one of the interests in engaging with this practice is that text actually gets decentered at the beginning of the process because we, 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 we bring in text towards the end and, uh, and it's only one element of the stage and it's not necessarily the most important because we can still engage our ethnographic material only through sound or only through light if we want to evoke a certain atmosphere or a certain um, event. But Greg can say more about the specificity of uh, yeah, but before I do, it's so funny because Christiana uh, is sharing about some of the stuff that sort of uh, I brought to the table. But but you know what what Christiana brought for me a lot of things about the research process, but particularly she introduced me to the work of Jean Favre Sada, who is a French anthropologist who was working in the Bocage in France, studying witchcraft, and having a difficult time um, sort of finding her way into the field. Everyone was kind of like, there is no witchcraft here. And it wasn't until she actually got caught into the situation as a participant because she got um, bewitched. Basically her, her property got, um, in, in, she was told that she was being um, enchanted. And then suddenly she found her way in because she couldn't separate herself any longer. So, so she wrote this incredible essay called about participation which challenges the whole concept of participant observation and, um, you know, says you are uh, one of her favorite lines that we love so much. She says um, to participate while observing or to observe while participate is about as paradoxical as savoring a burning hot ice cream. And <clears throat> so she poses that in order to do proper field research, you have to be caught in the, the kind of grammars and the world of the field itself. And then she posits that when you leave the field, um, you have to find a way of getting caught again in those same sort of energies and, and effective realities. You can't write from a kind of theoretical position of understanding your material, you have to be caught again. And so that was sort of our project was how do we use these compositional practices um, to find a way to create an opportunity for people coming back from the field to get caught again and not know what they're doing. And, and th then what we do is we, we, we make little ep what we call episodes. And, you know, it might be an episode exploring a piece of empirical material, or it might be an episode exploring, you know, the way a beam of light falls on the ground, right? But we basically just make these tiny little episodes and we they start with either I or we begin and they end with we end. And so if I'm making an episode about this bottle, you know, I might just say, I begin. 
I end, right? So the purpose of doing this is simply to say, you know, oh, this was in my field site. Like I encountered one of these and this is sort of the phenomenological qualities that it has that can, can speak from the stage. And, you know, at, then we build on those and we add text and we add light and we add other things. And the, the, the meanings, they, they move from being more phenomenologically oriented to being more semiotic. Like they start to mean certain things to different people. You know, the way a text is used when I blow into the bottle and make that sound has certain resonances for certain people. So we, we make the moments more and more complex as we build, but we start from this very basic premise of initially just exploring how the different elements that we might have encountered in the field and then brought back into the, the studio speak back to us as, as audiences and our interaction between that kind of conversation and ourselves allows like new kind of relations to our empirical material to emerge. Does, Christiana, do you wanna yeah, help perfect. me? <laughs> okay. So we spend a lot of time really exploring all the elements of the stage that we have in the room. So sometimes we, you know, if we are doing like a weekend long workshop, we might spend, you know, the, the first day just not touching text and exploring the objects, costumes, lights, sounds that we bring to the workshop, but also the space where the workshop is happening. So, um, you know, we, we, we explore the architecture of the space, everything that doesn't move, things that might be, you know, hanging. And it's almost like for me, um, I've always seen it as a practice of awakening our attention and awakening our affective uh, responses to what is around us. So that when we do engage text, the text resonates with something around us, it resonates with the, in fact, with the affective quality of the space where we are in. So the idea is uh, in the here and now of having finished fieldwork, how do we re, re I want to say represent the text, but it's really re-encounter it and uh, and find the ways to get caught again or get caught anew, uh, which is kind of you know we we work with the with the question that Fabrizada raises in you know what do what does it mean to write what does it mean to write ethnography it's not a distancing process but it's a process of um, of recreating or creating relationships anew with the material, with the sites, with the encounters and, and kind of bring it back in. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. if I can jump in um, the reference of Farid Sada, not only because I'm a scholar of magic, but I think because it explains why, if I can do some code switching here, if, since we are at the divinity school, how such a method could be particularly useful in the study of religion. And I think about the religion and the object and the affects and also the encounters with, you know, other than human or more than human, um, let's say interlocutors, persons and relationships. So um, yeah, I just wanted to point out that this might be very uh, presented, of course, you're an anthropologist not working particularly on religion, and um, you work in theater, Greg, and so um, from a scholar of religion, it makes really very much sense, and I think it's a great opportunity to explore aspects of the study of religion that are not easily um, explorable. 
do you have um, something to share with us? Some sort of, you know, an episode or a couple of episodes so we can see Afric theater in action? Yeah, we actually have a, a um, it wasn't like planned, but we have uh, in a short episode on magic <laughs> that, um, that we did while we were in residence at the Center for Experimental Ethnography at the University of Pennsylvania last year. Uh, last fall, we we did a seminar, a graduate seminar on Afric theater, and the students who participated uh, brought, you know, fragments of their ethnographic material. And at the end, we did uh, a public event, uh, and um, which was organized by our colleague uh, Deborah Thomas, and. Um, and so we wanted to share like just a couple of minutes from yeah, that. And before we share that, I did want, I wanted to just um, talk a little bit. Of, so we've described sort of these early essays in, in making episodes and kind of getting into the qualities of the object. I love the, the, the non-human interlocutors. I love that. Um, but um, this is a much more complex moment that sort of was developed at the end of a long workshop. So, so there is a lot of text. There's a lot of different kinds of, there's many, many things going on in it. And so I just want to frame it by saying, you know, that this, uh, when we had spoken earlier, we had spoken about the, like the distinction between individual meaning making and kind of collective meaning making. And, you know, um, I think, when we make these more complex moments, that's a lot of what we're pressing into is, is um, you know, what are the distinctions and the varieties and the, you know, what one might qualify as confusions around what something means um, and, and the disagreements and the, the lack of clarity is actually a lot of where the, the, no, the new knowledge actually comes from. So we, we are more interested in kind of developing these open sort of episodes rather than something that has a clear and distinct meaning that can be shared by everyone. So I just, you know, if if it's a little bit um, unclear, that's sort of where the juice is. So I, I have that lined up to share with you. Thanks a lot for the clarification. We begin. In classical anthropological contexts, this is from Field Notes. In classical anthropological contexts, magic has been contrasted with work rather than treated itself as a form of labor with a number of certain and measurable costs. That is to say, magic is not a technically productive trade. At best, magic is a symbolic superstratum that helps practitioners imagine technical processes for pragmatic ends but it is not itself a form of technical labor. Art, however, is a form of technical labor for Gell. In Haitian Creole, the term travail means work. The mundane, the sacred, the secular, the magical, that beings use to chercher la vie or make a life for themselves. That's an interesting point. Work is meant to do things. Work often fails to achieve its end. Even when it fails, it makes life. But even when it fails, it is a collaborative act that pulls together people, substances, 
wisdoms, durations, and styles of practice. In Haitian voodoo, work means magic. This is from Jean Favre Sada. Nobody ever talks about witchcraft to gain knowledge, but to gain power. Witchcraft is spoken words, but these words are not knowledge or information. The act in witchcraft is the word. There is no neutral position with spoken words. In witchcraft, words wage war. There is no room for uninvolved observers. We end. What was the last word? Greg? Uninvolved observers. Um, Great. So uh, we can do a little structural and interpretive. Sorry, I'm trying to turn my video off now. There we go. Thanks a lot. Do you want to comment on this? Uh, yeah, well, I, could, I, I mean, I'm happy to comment on sort of like where we would go from there rather than talking again about what it necessarily means. We might do, um, so we, we would then follow this. So first of all, a lot of episodes are made that people are like, whatever, you know, and then we just move on to the next one, you know, but if there's a, a resonance for people, um, in a particular episode, then we'll do what's called a structural analysis. And the structural analysis is simply what exactly we saw and heard without attaching any kind of significance or narrative or meaning to it. So we might say, you know, a man and a woman were standing on opposite sides of the stage. There was a box of bottles in the middle of the stage. Somebody said, this is from field notes and started talking. Then the man put the bottles out in a particular order and seemed to be paying attention. But even that is, uh, that's meaning making, right? Seemed to be paying attention. So it's hard. I've been doing this for years and I still have trouble, you know, but he laid them out in a row. He moved them back and forth. He stopped, he looked at them. So we really try to articulate just what actually was seen and heard on the stage. And then we start to do what's called an interpretive analysis, where, where we start to tie different associations and meanings that might have emerged for us based on the combination of what happened. So we really try to tie it to our structural interpretation, right? So there was a moment just now when I was watching it where um, I talked about gaining power and I noticed that Alyssa, the woman was like kind of crawling, had a kind of crawling quality on the floor and was grabbing the bottles in a way that I made up to mean that she was like snatching power somehow. Um, why? Just because of my particular set of associations. And, you know, I've never had that thought before. I've seen this a number of times. So, but for some reason today that emerged for me. And then people start to, you know, kind of defend, you know, people have stakes in their interpretations and they start to, you know, and the the meaning maker, the, the uh, moment makers themselves or episode makers themselves aren't allowed to comment 
on what they meant, right? So we don't clarify what we meant because we're working directly with the meanings that emerged for the individuals. You know, we make, we send the message out and then whatever you get, that's what we, we accomplished, you know? So we don't clarify with our post episode descriptions. And then, you know, out of this kind of conversation about what meant what and what resonated for whom and, you know, where the value lies or where the energy lies in the moment, you start to see all of these different kinds of layers of stakes and, and um, values that exist inside the individuals. Uh, you, and then from there, you can go on to do any sort, any number of things. You could say, oh, I really like how there's an argument about what the shaking of the bottles means. And so you might add elements to create more dissonance between interpretations. Or you might say, no, I want, I want the group to come away with the thing that I initially intended. And based on this feedback, I need to clarify my elements and, and order them in a different way so that I do create a shared meaning. So what the episode maker does with it from there is up to them. But for me, this, this, this process of, of um, analysis is where a lot of the kind of, you know, like knowledge making happens, you know, what, you know, we, we find out what signs and language mean in new ways. But so for example, I want to like underline something that is very important to us and to the practice is that what we are trying to uh, cultivate uh, is a way of uh, thinking and being with the material that is more associative rather than argumentative. And so a lot of the uh, practice is to just make associations that may seem random, but we know they are not. There's always like an unconscious element that then gets unearthed as we work. So for example, in for th this is like a kind of a complete episode, but it really started by Alisa bringing just one paragraph or her field notes to the uh, workshop. Then we said, bring objects that you find compelling for whatever reason, they don't necessarily have to be linked to your research, but just you like them and she brought a bunch of bottles. And then we were working with the, the uh, work of Fabresada. And so it really just started with her making a moments and an episode with the bottles, period. Um, and we all like this kind of, you know, like the sound of the bottles of like putting them on the floor and then back in the back end. And then when she layered text to this presence of the bottles and the bottles being uh, organized in space and then brought them back on the bucket and then shaken, we kind of started to feel that there was Obviously, you know, what we were doing with the bottles was not literally what was happening in her text, but we realized that the association between the text about magic and power and the bottles somehow could speak to one another and evoke in one another different things. So for me, for example, the bottles also came to symbolize some form of power that she's trying to grasp but the moment she thinks she's grasping it it's also out of control it starts shaking and so we kind of you know then we kept making other associations and then we went to, to Favresada and we felt like oh you know maybe this you know all this like a 
a theoretical text, uh, Alisa's um, film notes, and these elements that we have here, I think even the bottles, maybe she didn't even bring the bottle to the workshop. They were already in the studio and we just uh, kind of um, looked them in the process. And so, so this both like kind of free associating between elements of the stage and then see what happens when they, when we create part, you know, Marilyn Stratern, we say partial connections, what kind of analytical work emerges that is not that is more associative and intuitive than something that we would explain in a linear way and can, I add, can i just add one little detail because what 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 christiana is saying is so important and it's also it also the process of developing that moment really points to the ways in which the elements of the stage that aren't text can teach us what about our text is important to us? Because I'm remembering now, as Christiana is describing this, when, when Alyssa first made the moment or the episode, it, there was a lot of text, a lot of text, and it was all super compelling, but it was a lot. And you kind of would check out after a certain point. And when we analyzed the moment initially, we realized that the point of energy for everyone for different reasons was the shaking of the bottles. And so in order to highlight the shaking of the bottles, she had to pare down the text so that it didn't get diluted. And so she went back to the text with that idea of like featuring the bottle shaking rather than some important idea in her empirical research to, to make her edits. And she made the edits so that she could feature this bottle shaking. And you know, I don't miss the other text at all is the point. You know, it was all really, really interesting. But you know, it was the elements of the stage that sort of oriented her back to her research, um, which I find really exciting. That's fascinating. And this is one of the aspects that uh, my students and I found very fascinating about your work. So the non-directing, open, horizontal approach to knowledge, but also the magic, so to speak, if I might use <laughs> this pun, of epic theater, because I'm acquainted with, um, with the um, text but uh, hearing the text read in connection to the bottles, for example, and this I'm doing my, you know, um, associative <laughs> um, comments here, um, reminding me about, uh, in particular, what she was, uh, favorite Sada was saying about words and magic and how that containers like bottles were very fragile in a way um, because they're made of glass. Um, and so inhabiting this space of, um, this ambivalent space of you know something very powerful but also very uh, fragile so uh, this is a bit some of i think a good example of the type of um effects <laughs> that your affect theater can have also in in the audience um and i'm curious about so what's the role of the audience is there a tension between individual and collecting meaning making um uh, if you can tell us a little bit more about um how you see and if you see affect theater as um, an example of a non-rational way of knowing that can you know be meaningful in anthropological work, in uh, dramaturgical work, and, and so on. Um, thank you. So um, I'll, I'll start. There are many questions there, but um, the role of audience. So there are different kinds of audiences. 
when we do workshops, uh, we're usually in a group of um, from 10 to 15 people. And uh, we work in small groups, so mostly each group uh, creates a theatrical episode that then are presented to the rest of the workshop participants. So that's uh, one, uh, one kind of audience, right? And as Greg was saying that, you know, when we present in the workshop, the moment is important to, the feedback is very important because that's the moment where we move from the individual associations that the episode makers made to what the, the larger group is feeling, thinking, interpreting. And so we, and then we try to integrate. And so that's one, one you know, group of um, spectators. But then there's also the group of spectators who come like the two times that we made performances at Davis and in San Francisco, we, um, we titled these two performances Unstories. And they were both around the question of the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. And we worked with material that I had collected in mostly in Southern Italy. And, uh, you know, the, the, we were trying to work against the official discourse and the official stories about what is a crisis and what is the refugee crisis in particular. And so we were interested in unstoring the official discourse by trying to tap into minor stories, a la Deleuze, right? Stories that would stay in the margin or stories who would uh, um, have a different register. And so we, we had audiences who came to see the two performances. And the first year of the performance, uh, we performed and then we had a Q&A with the audience. And it was interesting to see what the audience felt. It was academic and non-academic audiences. Uh, you know, some of the students who were in our classes brought their family members, mothers, uh, husbands, spouses. And, and so it was interesting that some of them, you know, were saying, you know, I brought my husband, he's not an academic, I had no idea what he would get out of it. But in that episode where you did this and this and this, uh, he got it, what it means to be trapped into a category of recognition that, you know, the nation state has so many of, you know, such as being a refugee, being a victim of human trafficking, you know, and he had it, and he, you know, he understood it more at an emotional affected level than, than, than rational. Um, and other participants said, you know, it was almost like entering a, a dreamscape, precisely because we were trying not to create um, a linear narrative. Um, and so the episodes were kind of uh, suggestive of uh, some sites, bureaucratic sites, uh, um, conversations, documents, from archives, but there was not really like a beginning of an unfolding and an end. And then the second year, we did something slightly different because we organized the performance. I think it was in three or four sequences of episodes. And after each sequence of events, we stopped and we asked, quest we asked a question to the audience. 
And so the audience, it was kind of like creating a Brechtian interruption and then have the audience also be part of the process of trying to associate together or, or struggle with a, a collective meaning. So these are you know, two sets of audience. Then they are the audiences of the students who work with us and come and take the workshops and the tension that emerge around what are the ethics of this kind of representation? What are we doing with this material while we are talking about and using the words of people who are not here with us um, working? And it seems that this question of representation is huge and it emerges always sometimes in uncomfortable ways. Um, and sometimes I know why it emerges uh, in uncomfortable ways. And sometimes I don't, I don't understand. And the only way I'm explaining it to myself is that I think when bodies and theater becomes the form of writing or the form of representing ethnographic material, something, some tension and some uncomfortable feelings about representation becomes heightened. They become even more, because I don't see it as more problematic than writing an academic test, text, or writing an academic article. When we write, we are writing without the people with whom we worked in the field. And But I think, I think one important issue there is, is that the people who are encountering your audience is not with you, right? So this idea of the body and putting the body, like staking the body behind a position or what, what the student might perceive of as a position um, feels very challenging to students a lot of times. And then I also think it's because we're playing, right? And I think there's a seriousness about ethnographic yeah. research, like you shouldn't play with this but, stuff. You know? Exactly, but, the, and, and, and this is maybe another thing that is important to point out. When we do affect theater, we are not really playing or performing. And that's one thing that often gets misunderstood. Like if I make an, I'm not an actress, I have no training and I have no interest in, in it. But what is performed in the workshop and in the performances that we create is our relationship with the ethnographic material, with worlds that are being conjured by the ethnographic material, but we are not personifying the ethnographic material. So it is, you know, another way of creating a relation between worlds, between us, between collaborators and the material that we encounter and, and to, and to perform that relationship, not, not personifying the experience of a refugee or personifying the experience of an ethnopsychiatrist working with uh, um, migrant uh, clients. It's, it's not that, it's, it's creating a different space for writing and for analyzing and, and grappling with the material. And if I can add a comment of one of my students, um, Rebecca, um, <laughs> shout out to her. Um, she claimed uh, in, you know, in approaching this material and others that theater today is in our society, one of the um, 
one of the few places and spaces where we can experiment with other multiple subjectivities that um and is this an aspect of your work because in in approaching your work as religious studies scholars who might be doing ethnography in fields where you know we uh, do things experience out of the ordinary uh, connection and relationships um the issue about multiple subjectivities comes out a lot and um somehow we recognize that theater has this special cultural value and balance now that in our society that allows us to do that do you have any comments on this i think that's right you know i think that you know i'm, I'm teaching a, a course right now and and um we're talking about theater of the real, which is a category of documentary theater that was kind of articulated by a scholar, Carol Martin. Um, but, you know, we're really taught, or, or what's coming up for the students a lot is the distinction between documentary film and theater of the real. And um, I, think, I, I think documentary film has the capacity to do this as well. But I think because of Brecht and this idea of distancing and being able to perform the fact that we're performing, there's all these kind of meta levels of representation that you can avail yourself of in the theater. It, it's not that we necessarily are making that point in work, but certainly the, the, the forms of theater that are available to us really allow us to call into question um, the authority of a particular stakeholder, the authority of a particular um, interlocutor. And, you know, you can, you can say, okay, now I'm playing this one character, and then you can get dressed as that one character, which is a very Brechtian thing to do right in front of the audience. And you can say, now I'm being this person, and then you can take that off and put on a completely opposing costume and play a different character. And immediately you've raised the problem of, um, making truth claims in a way that it it's just not as easy to do in documentary film or there's something about the quality of film that that seems to convey a sort of realness that is also it's not true but it also has that quality we believe in the realness of film in a way that um you know theater just seems like a, a construction you know it's very visibly we're making you know constructing representations rather than kind of seeing reality um so i do th i think that's correct from your students also, i wanted to say just one thing that a few years ago i was i, I took a, a workshop with eugenio barba who is um like a big name in in the in theater anthropology and uh, and we've been you know in conversation since then and he talks about how and he made like the kind of performances he makes are completely dreamscapes so you know there's no linearity he uses different languages uh, um and he he said something very interesting he said what the theater allows me to do is to is to work with simultaneity like on the stage you can have uh, 10 different things happening that that uh, belong to different times uh, to different linguistic registers uh, to different cultural spaces and it can all happen in the same way just like in a dream right and so you can tap into that non-linear um non-linear nature of memory also i want to say and so there is something chaotic about it and and one would say fictional but also extremely 
real. And so I think, you know, that coexistence of, uh, you know, different kinds of subjectivities is a little bit this question of also simultaneity. You can have a lot of stuff right there at the same time. And there's also something so undeniably real. I mean, I think part of the idea of affect theater, like the reason we call it affect theater is because in spite of the fact that you're doing a representation, there's also nothing more real than bodies in shared space together. So you're both representing and recreating your field sites and you're also alive together in the space with the effective kind of environment that's being created between you and the audience. And I also wanna just say, you know, this idea of simul simultaneity, just because just we've left out the last little piece of the work. And so this is a great key into that. So you have a bunch of episodes that resonate for whatever reason for the group. And then we enter what we would call the dramaturgical phase where we start to think about how do these different episodes live in relationship to each other. So we can, we can sequence them or we can often layer them, which is where two or three moments or episodes are happening simultaneously because that there is a lot of power in that. Anyway, so that's the last little piece of the instruction set. Thanks a lot, really. Um, while I encourage the attendees to ask questions in the Q&A uh, feature uh, of Zoom, I want to ask you how is and was your work received in academia? Uh, what are the boons or challenges of uh, this work with affect theater? Uh, and what advice would you give to students or researchers who are interested in exploring the potential, let's say, of affect theater? Well, I'll just start off by saying that it's been the the big boon for me has been like meeting and working with Christiana because um, I feel like uh, and this gets back to this question of shared meaning making too. You know, I feel that in the theater there's this emphasis, you know, in in training for the theater. There's this emphasis on commercial theater and and. What's commercial is usually, not always, but usually like, like tells a shared story that everybody can agree upon. The more kind of clarity there is in the storytelling, the better the piece is. And so a lot of times in the theater world, I feel like there's a there's a presumption that what we're what we're trying to do is make is tell clear stories. Um, you know, that that make us feel good for whatever reason or entertain us. And so this base assumption often makes my work in this field sort of hard for people to grasp in the theater because they just don't quite know why anyone would wanna create confusion or not knowing. <laughs> and so what I've found working with Christiana is that you know people in anthropology and ethnography and social sciences are a little more open to these different ways of using narrative and affect to kind of you know understand the world differently and so it's very refreshing for me to 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 be introduced into these circles because i feel like it's more where my the heart of my work is even though i'm technically uh you know in showbiz you know so um i mean we you know we are invited to give workshops now you know after we've been working on this for seven years so we are mostly invited 
from anthropology departments to give workshops. Um, in that, it's been very hard. I mean, we published articles in anthropology, but now that we're working on a book, it's been very difficult to find a publisher. <laughs> so um, as much as in anthropology, there is all this experimental energy, when you actually want to ground it in a, in a publication, it's not easy. And, and in part, it was because, you know, sections of the book are um, graphic uh, and we had, we want to make a, like a performative text that it also somewhat um, engages the reader. And so we, you know, we had QR codes and uh, links and things that we want the reader to do. And that did not fly very well. Like we found Bloomsbury now who is uh, interested and, you know, we will go with them, but not easy. So, um, so I think the reception is, uh, you know, is, is challenging. I think uh, um, students, uh, those who are interested in performance and theater, it's, it's straight, it's more straightforward, their relationship with our practice. Those who are not necessarily interested in, in the arts, but are curious about experimenting, um, and this is actually, I, I love working with those students in particular because they're skeptical, they have, you know, they don't believe it's going to work. And then, you know, some of the students I'm working with now, not interested in theater and performance, they kind of felt that they could draw inspiration in how to write, how to assemble and curate the ethnographic material from empirical raw um, stuff into a written text because through the workshops they were able to create association between material associations that were not obvious but they are interesting and they are evocative so it's it's for me it's very interesting to work with with those who are not interested in theater and who can um who draw some inspiration um from the workshop and the book that we're working on also has voices of uh, seven of the people who collaborated with us. Some of, most of them are not in the art. So, um, and then as we were saying before, the tension in the room is usually around the question of representation and, and what to do, you know, with our bodies and with, others' words. And I, I just came to, we both came to realize that, you know, the workshop or the seminars that we organize, we want to make them as much as possible places where people feel comfortable making ethical mistakes. Because uh, we, you know, we are surrounded by so many um, politically correct practices that we want to honor, but sometimes it's difficult to um, conform our languages or our material, our questions to also, you know, norms of uh, um, political correctness. And so we, and sometimes we make mistakes inevitably. Um, and I, and, but sometimes it's paralyzing, right? Not to want to make mistakes. And, and we have experienced that sense of paralysis in some of our workshops where people don't wanna make episodes because they're afraid of, make, of making 
a faux pas. And so, but mistakes are so generative. And so, um, so the idea is also to create a space for mistakes making and confusion making. <laughs> Thank you a lot. And I'm really on board on these ethical mistakes and the opportun generative opportunities that they um, they have. So thank you very much. I think it's time to wrap up. Unfortunately, I would have gone on forever. But um, thank you, Christiane and Greg, for your participation and for this wonderful conversation. And thank you all for having been here with us. Please stay tuned on the activities of the CSWR, the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative and Nosiologies. And you can find all this information on the CSWR website that you can find in the chat, including the link to the event entitled The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspective, a conversation with David Yadden and my TNT colleague, Michael Ferguson. This event will be uh, will take place uh, online tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Thank you so much, Giovanna. Thank you all for being here and have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.